The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. As part of our celebration of the Apollo 11 mission and our programming around Destination Moon, a traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Services, hosted here at the Museum of Flight this summer, the museum was honored to welcome Dr. Tiesel Muir Harmony, curator of the Apollo spacecraft collection at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. She recently authored a book, Apollo to the Moon, a history in 50 objects. But her visit to the museum focused on one of our artifacts, a specially built Boeing 707 that acted as Air Force One, part of the presidential air fleet. Dr. Muir Harmony joined me to talk about the plane and its surprising role in the Apollo 11 mission, along with stories of the astronauts and their wives in the weeks immediately following the astronauts' safe return to Earth. We here at the Museum of Flight are very proud of what we affectionately call our Air Force One, but you know it by probably a more specific name, VC-137V. <laughs> <laughs> I was so thrilled the first time I got to come here and see it in person because it's been such an important plane within uh, U.S. political history and then also within space history more particularly. And and it served many purposes beyond just carrying the president and political dignitaries around. It also took the crew of Apollo 11. Yes, and that's where my my interest in it primarily lies because, um, yeah, the, the crew of Apollo 11 did this worldwide tour following their flight, the first lunar landing flight. They visited every continent in this whirlwind tour and it was aboard this plane. People follow the story of Apollo usually to the splashdown, right? Mm -hmm. They know we got to the moon and we came back, obviously. A lot happened after Command Module Columbia hit the water. Yeah, exactly. And an important point there is that President Nixon decided to meet them at splashdown um, at the USS Hornet. He was, he was very thrilled to welcome them back. And then he immediately went to Guam, where he gave a speech and... Um, really articulated the Nixon doctrine for the first time publicly at that moment. And then he continued to embark on what was called the Moon Glow Tour. So he did his own diplomatic tour after the Apollo mission, called it Moon Glow. And it was a way to discuss his his approach to U.S. foreign policy within Southeast Asia, his, his hopes and expectations for changing the conflict in, in Vietnam in his administration. And, and he did this by talking about the first lunar landing and what that teaches us or reminds us or suggests about the importance of, of peace and brotherhood and sort of these, these higher ideals, perhaps even. And so the first lunar landing was important to Nixon during that tour. He also visited Romania and um, his meetings with Ceausescu there helped contribute to the opening of improved relations with China and North Vietnam. So Project Apollo and U.S. foreign relations and sort of Nixon's larger grand strategy at the time are really intertwined in this moment. And then I think the the giant step tour when uh, the Apollo astronauts took on the Air Force One plane after their flight is another great example of that. Yeah, we don't often think of today. I mean, mm -hmm. I was born after, well, after the moon landings. And I don't, growing up, 
we certainly aren't taught uh, the moon landing as a political tool. But that's really the context that it existed in at the time. I mean, this was a mm -hmm. huge political coup on the part of the U.S. that obviously mm -hmm. Nixon was happy to leverage. Yeah, from the very start. And it was very clear to Kennedy. If you if you listen to or you read uh, his address to Congress uh, in, in May 1961, he, he articulated it that way. He said, landing humans on the moon, returning them safely back to Earth was going to be important for larger geopolitical alliance, winning the hearts and minds of the world public, that it became very clear to him that space exploration was going to contribute to national power and national standing at the time. And so from the from the very start, the Apollo program was tied to larger geopolitical interests. And you can see that follow through the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, and then also the Nixon administration as well. The same thing with this global tour that the Apollo astronauts took mm -hmm. and go just for their <laughs> their health and wellness. This, there was reasons behind uh, sending them on a tour. It was it was politically motivated, and there was um, this expectation that, given the the enthusiasm for the Apollo program and the first lunar landing in particular, that the astronauts would be the best ambassadors the United States could send around the world to to build friendships, to help improve alliances, to uh, reward allies, and to to present a really positive picture of the United States at that time. Visitors who come to the museum flight, when they board this aircraft, they're literally walking in the footsteps of these Apollo 11 astronauts who flew on the Air Force One mm -hmm. around the world. Lay out the tour a little bit. Where, where did sure. it start? Where did it end? What were some of the the highlights. Sure. So it started in Mexico City and, and then they flew south um, and they stopped off at a number of places in South America. That was actually seen as the priority at the time. Political priority was to, to focus on South America and U.S. alliance there. Um, so they also visited Bogota, uh, Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires. And the moon landing was really popular in these places. So every right before they they landed in each of these spots, the astronauts would learn about how their mission was received there, which was it must have been great fun for them to <laughs> to get a sense of what the moon landing was like when you're in in Bogota and how many people are watching it. And um, in Argentina, for instance, one in two people, so half the population, watched the the first lunar landing, and this was wow. unprecedented at the time. And and there are many examples of it being around the world. Each place they went, that was unprecedented audiences for the moon landing. And then also for their visit as well. Um, so from South America, they then flew to um, Europe. So they stopped off in, in Madrid first. And, and Spain was an important partner for U.S. space exploration at the time. And so that was seen as an essential stop. When the astronauts uh, visited each location, it usually would start off the plane would land in the airport, and then there'd be a ceremony at the, the airport, and then they would do a motorcade. Their, their route would be publicized ahead of time, so people would know, and they'd come out, and there was thousands and hundreds of thousands of people lining the street um, in every city they visited uh, in, and they ha often gave public talks. They met with heads of state, had meals, receptions, things like that, and then also would often meet with scientists, local scientists, to discuss space research. After Europe, it headed Asia, Australia, did some stops along the way there too. Yep. And, and one stop in Africa. Initially, there was no stop in Africa on the tour schedule. And Apollo 8 Commander Frank Borman said to Nixon, it's essential that we put an African stop in this tour. And so they went to the Democratic Republic of Congo and, and stopped there. Uh, and then, yeah, on, on throughout Asia, some of the biggest receptions were Bombay. Estimated 2 million people saw them on that visit. They did a, a really big event at a sports stadium and they had a full scale replica of the lunar model 
module and the, the crew climbed <laughs> up and down the ladder. And, um, there was a wonderful exchange of gifts and, and then gave great speeches about the lessons of Apollo, the spirit of Apollo, the necessity of international inclusion. They were quite well received. Um, they went to Australia and Korea and, and Japan and then back home and then landed in Washington, D.C., where they had a reception at the White House and a, an intimate meal with President Nixon. Who wouldn't want that, right? <laughs> um, you, you mentioned Africa was not on the list initially. Why might it have been ignored and why did you mentioned kind of in passing why it got added, but mm-hmm. you know, why that that country? Well, so um, when they were planning the tour and and Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, had a really hands-on role in this, um, state, the State Department and the U.S. Information Agency were also involved, as, w- as was NASA. They wanted to have the astronauts visit every single place they could, but they wanted them back in the United States before the Apollo 12 mission mm-hmm. in November. And so when the astronauts returned from the moon, they had to go to quarantine for 21 days. And then they did some motorcade, a big celebratory visits throughout the United States, ticker tape parades, and then a big reception out in L.A. And so the the length of time that they could spend on this tour was somewhat limited. So they couldn't visit everywhere they, they wanted to. And they actually ended up visiting Canada after they after the tour. So it was a, an additional leg. So they, <laughs> and Canada. And Canada. So they, they started off in Mexico and they, they returned to the U.S. in time for Apollo 12. And then after the Apollo 12 mission was a success, then they went to Canada. And that was because if something happened during the Apollo 12 mission, they wanted to have the the crew here within the United States to help. They thought it was important that they weren't traveling abroad during that time. And so they had to be um, very, they had to really limit the number of stops. And in many places, the astronauts were there for a day at most. The day they went to the Netherlands, they also went to Belgium, for instance. And mm-hmm. so it was a really tight schedule. And I think that's a big part of the reason why an African country was not originally on the list. The cities were chosen for geopolitical reasons and based on the Nixon administration's idea of, you know, what was politically most valuable, which stops were politically most valuable for the astronauts to visit. That's just, that's how things laid out. For the Nixon administration, it was seen as, as South America was, was, the, was the priority. And then after that, some countries within Asia. In many ways, this tour was the beginning of the rest of the lives of these astronauts. Now, obviously, they were famous from the moment they were announced, probably as the Apollo 11-3, mm-hmm. but now they're back. They've been to the moon and back. How did this impact their personal lives and set them up for the next few decades of their life? Very small question. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, the tour itself was quite taxing. And if you can imagine training to go to the moon and then going to the moon and then going through quarantine and then almost immediately after that going on this this tour, which was over 20 countries in just a handful of weeks. It was it was quite exhausting, I think, for them. And there was a lot of expectations about their role as national heroes. And so a lot of people wanted to, to see them, to meet them, to hear them speak, which is a huge honor. But it was also quite a taxing period on them, I, I believe. But Mike Collins would be a great example of sort of the, the impact of this tour and um, these types of activities on them. So he found this type of work quite interesting and meaningful. And so after the tour, he, when they were, <laughs> the story goes that when uh, the astronauts were having dinner with Nixon, Nixon was asking, what do you want to do next? And, and Collins <laughs> talked to him about being interested in working for the State Department. And then Nixon called up Secretary of State on the phone and said, you know, 
Collins wants to join the State Department, and he became Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs. And I think that really speaks to his interest and sort of also sensibilities, talents within this area. But each of the astronauts after their missions took their own path. But I think there was an awareness and appreciation for their role as representatives of their country and of spaceflight as well. And how did their families react to all this? The wives of the astronauts, the Apollo 11 crew, went on the tour with them. And they had their own publicity and press conferences and things like that. So they were, they'd often have press conferences with journalists from women's magazines and uh, and have like tea receptions. And they would be asked questions about what it was like to be a wife of an astronaut. Um, and so they they were also taking on this role as representatives of, the, of their country. I think for the most part, from what I've heard, they, you know, they found this, this trip hugely interesting and uh, these sort of the opportunities to meet all these foreign leaders and um, have wonderful receptions and exchange gifts and meet people who are just so excited to meet them in person and to speak with them. I, I, uh, from what I know, it was quite a positive experience for many of them. I think for Buzz Aldrin and his wife, there was a bit more strain and Coming back from the mission and then also going on this tour was a bit of a challenge. Aldrin uh, writes about it in One of autobiography, <laughs> so you can you can read the details there. Now, you've written a book about artifacts within the Smithsonian's collection mm-hmm. that relate to the moon landing and the Apollo missions. Do you want to share a little bit about this? Sure. I decided to to do this book that told the history of Project Apollo through 50 of the Smithsonian's artifacts. And I, I selected a, a range of artifacts that could help tell both the technological history as well as the social and political and cultural history of Project Apollo. There's been some wonderful work that's been written over the past few decades sort of reinterpreting Project Apollo through these various lenses. And I thought that artifacts would be a great way to engage with that those new perspectives as well as sort of dive deep into some smaller individual stories that might not be included in a more general discussion of Project Apollo. So it was it was Great fun to work on. I often say the hardest part was narrowing it down to 50 objects um, (laughs) because there are so many wonderful objects that are really evocative and have such fascinating stories behind them. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up our conversation here? No, but uh, thank you so much for having me here today. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining me today on The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. You can find information on Dr. Muir Harmony's book, Apollo to the Moon, A History in 50 Objects, in this episode's show notes. Destination Moon, the Apollo 11 mission, is a state-of-the-art traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian Institution, featuring the iconic Apollo 11 Command Module Columbia and 20 one-of-a-kind artifacts, many flown on the historic mission. Destination Moon shows why we went to the moon, how we got there, and the impact that the moon landing had on the world. The exhibit closes in just a few days if you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out, so if you haven't visited yet, now is the time. Of course, Air Force One is sticking around afterwards, so even if you miss Destination Moon, make sure you walk over and give that plane a visit next time you're at the museum. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with our episodes. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, 
We'll see you out there, folks.